Good morning once again on this Lord's Day. My name is Bill Leip. I'm one of the servant leaders in this church. I was given the responsibility to bring the message this morning, which I am excited about and uh, which I hope you will receive in your hearts and minds. That is God's word, not mine, and that it will edify you, bless you, and then carry you forward throughout this week and the months ahead. Most of what I will say this morning comes from Scripture. However, the beginning will not be from Scripture. It is from the Chicago, Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. My, my thought this morning, my desire this morning through the Spirit of God is to bring you from the beginning of how we achieved so great a salvation. So great a salvation that it is reflected in the pages of the Bible perfectly. So, from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy, the authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and in every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. We stray from Scripture in faith or conduct to stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. Then it goes on, and uh, let me just read one more paragraph. The, follow the following statement affirms this inerrancy of Scripture afresh, making it clear our understanding of it and warning against its denial. We are persuaded that to deny it is to set aside the witness of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit and to refuse that submission to the claims of God's own word, which marks the true Christian faith. We see it as our timely duty to make this affirmation in the face of current lapses from the truth of inerrancy among our fellow Christians and misunderstanding of this doctrine in the world at large. That is from the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy of 1978. And then from the Westminster Confession. Well, that's it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head of Savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in the time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. So as we proceed from those confessions, let us now read and, and expand upon the authority and the inerrancy and the truthfulness of Holy Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, this is in regard to all Scripture, is inspired, that term means God-breathed, by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And then, furthermore, in 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, 
But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. These are God's words. They are truth. As reflected by Jesus himself. When he prayed uh, for those that the Father had given him on the return of the uh, 70 that he had sent out. The Lord Jesus himself in this high priestly prayer speaks this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as he prays to the Father. In Titus 1, 2 and 3, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen by God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. You know, as I divert here for just a moment, when I sing that song we just sang, The Power of the Cross, it brings me to my knees and tears to my eyes. Because we, who are now forgiven, put them there. And as the song says, we can see, we can see our names written in his scars. And when he appears again, he will appear as his in his glorified state, but as the God-man. And as J. Vernon McGee, some of you probably used to listen to J. Vernon McGee, he's deceased now, used to say, God a very God, man a very man, at the same time. Two essences in one person, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Boy, are we blessed. Well, anyway, <clears throat> so from Proverbs 35 and 6. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. John 1. So we'll, we'll transition now from the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture to who this is that gave us so great a salvation. So we'll start at the very beginning. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, capital W. That word was used in the Hebrew and in the Greek to mean sovereign God. That's Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then skipping down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was in the beginning before the beginning of time with the Father. The beginning of time as we know it, no one can go before except God was already there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They were before the beginning of time. In the creation of, of the world, in creation of human beings, 
They were already there. So this Christ was there with God the Father before the beginning of time as we know it. Before the creation of the world, he was there. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Conduct yourselves in fear, knowing during your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And if you want to refer to Revelation 5, 11 and 12 and 13, 14, you can do so at your leisure. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And by the way, he was also given all authority, as you, if you refer back to uh, Matthew 28, 18. Hebrews 1. Now this is, th- this, I'm speaking to you from Scripture. None of this is my own doing. This is from Scripture. This is authoritative. This is all we need for faith and practice in this book. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, and he is the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And then in John 3, as Jesus is speaking, these are Jesus' words. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We're going to be celebrating, looking back to Christ's death on the cross in just a few minutes. So whatever believe, so whoever believes will have in him eternal life. For God, this is, this is one of the most famous verses ever written in Scripture. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John's whole desire for the Gospel of John, when he wrote it, was to prove the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole book is with that as the theme. Unquestionably, the Gospel of John stands as a proclamation of the divinity of Jesus Christ. John reveals the nature of Jesus in his first sentence. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he reveals Christ's nature in the very beginning, before time began. He was God, fully God. The message of John is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notably, in John, there are seven 
I am, Jesus, I am statements professing by himself that he is God, the great I am. So I plead with you to, to read the book of John, the gospel of John, with those thoughts in mind that Christ is God incarnate, the perfect God-man. So let's, uh, let's turn our attention now to Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And we'll have a few comments regarding that. And then we'll partake in the Lord's Supper. Philippians 2, 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. Verse 7, But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the humiliating death on the cross. For this reason... Also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just a few comments in regard to those uh, verses Jesus did not think equality as he was in his man, man form. That equality with, with God was something to be grasped or held onto. The Greek word for equality defines things that are exactly the same in size, quantity, quality, character, and number. In every sense, Jesus is equal to God and constantly claimed to be so during his earthly humanity. And I referred to his uh, seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus did not think that he could hold on to or grasp his equality with God in his manhood. He was God in his divine nature at all times. His attitude was not to cling to those things or his position, but to be willing to give them up for a season while he was here on earth. In uh, in verse 7, it says he emptied himself. From this Greek word comes the theological word kenosis, the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying himself in his incarnation. This was a self-renunciation, not an emptying himself of deity, nor an exchange of deity for humanity. Jesus did, however, renounce or set aside his privileges in several areas, and I have those for you if you would, uh, if you would like to uh, hear them later on. Christ became more than God in a human body, but he took on all the essential attributes of humanity, even to the extent that he identified with basic human needs 
and weaknesses. He became the God-man, fully God, and fully man. God a very God, man a very man. In verse 8 of Philippians 2, he became in appearance as a man. This is not simply a repetition of the last phrase, but a shift now in these verses from the heavenly focus to an earthly focus in these scriptures. Christ's humanity is described from the viewpoint of those who actually saw him, studied with him, listened to his messages, his sermons. So these are from the viewpoint of human eye witnesses. Paul is implying that although he outwardly looked like a man, there was much more to him, his deity, than many people recognized naturally. He humbled himself. After the humbling of incarnation, Jesus further humbled himself in that he did not demand normal human rights. Beyond even persecution, Jesus went to the lowest point, the furthest point and extent of his humiliation in dying as a criminal on our behalf. Even further humiliating himself was because Jesus' death was not by ordinary means, but was accomplished by crucifixion, the cruelest, most excruciating, most degrading form of death ever devised. Verse 9, For this reason also God, Christ's humiliation and exaltation by God are causally and inseparably linked. God highly exalted him. Christ's exaltation was fourfold. Then the early sermons of the apostles affirm his resurrection and coronation and the fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father today, interceding for us on our behalf, for believers. And in Hebrews 4.14 refers to the final element, which is his ascension. So he is seated there at the right hand of the Father as our great high priest. The exaltation did not concern Christ's nature or eternal place within the Trinity, but his new identity as the God-man. Christ's new status as the God-man meant God gave him privileges he did not have prior to the incarnation. Isn't that interesting? He could not have identified with man as the interceding high priest before his incarnation. He can now. He couldn't, he, and, and uh, he could not have been elevated from the lowest degree back to heaven as the substitute for sin. He was sinless. So God gave him the name above every name, Christ's new name, which further describes his essential nature. It's very, very important. He has the same nature as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. None of those attributes are lessened because they are shared equally by each of each member of the triune God. His essential nature, Christ's new name, which further describes his essential nature and places him above and beyond all comparison, is Lord. This name is the New Testament synonym for 
the Old Testament descriptions of God as sovereign ruler. The exaltation, Scripture affirms that this was Jesus' rightful title as the God-man. Now, Col- Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You can read this over and over and over again and find joy every time you read it. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And I refer you to Romans 11.36. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything and should have first place in the lives of all believers. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, verse 22, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. We have a foreign righteousness in Christ. It's not our righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And beyond reproach. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And if you want to amplify those verses, you can go back to Genesis and see Genesis 1 and 2. Now as we come to uh, the Lord's table this morning, I want to read again verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. He, God the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Our new nature given to us by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Our new nature is a righteousness we received from Christ by his great atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's where salvation comes from. It is from Christ and his atoning, perfectly implemented death on the cross for believers. So we are born again in him. 